you need to understand your audience. Like there is no, you know, right marketing channel better or worse. Like it comes to where your audience goes. And the same uh, happens with your stakeholders, with your team. You need to understand what their needs are and act on that. We believe that to solve the biggest, most complex marketing problems, you have to blur the lines between intuition and reason, imagination and logic, the theoretical and the practical. Join us as we reimagine problem solving with leading B2B marketers on B2B Marketing Solved. We're your hosts, Richard and Benedict. So, Rich, tell us what we've got on today on B2B Marketing Solved. So today we're talking about how to manage and embrace change at speed and scale across multiple markets. For many, the pandemic has obviously drastically changed uh, strategies and working practices. But what I want to know is, were those that were managing teams spread across different regions able to use their experience and react more quickly? So who better to speak to than someone in one of the world's most recognisable brands? Today, we've got Miguel Avalos joins us from Google. Hello, Miguel. Hi, Rich. Hi, <laughs> Benedict. Thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure. And uh, probably just as a quick introduction, I've been at Google for a little bit more than six years. Uh, based here in London, and I cover the region, EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And what I do is working across all the different markets where we operate to ensure that we have the uh, consistent strategy in the product marketing, very focused on B2B. That is basically our advertising business. And prior to Google, I used to work for Samsung Electronics in South Korea. I was there for a couple of years. Before that, I was studying in the U.S., doing a master's degree. Prior to that, I was in Mexico, where I am originally from. Probably you can notice by my accent. And I was there working for Procter & Gamble for six years, and I did sales and marketing. So all in all, I've been working for CPG tech companies, doing sales, marketing, mm -hmm. and trying to get as much international experience as possible, which is something that I love and I appreciate, working cross-functionally and trying to get a good holistic view of the business. And tech is an exciting place, as you know, and especially with all the changes that happened in the last year or year and a half. Now we are in the third year of pandemic. And of course, things are very dynamic and the digital transformation has accelerated so many businesses. So yeah, that's a long intro, but excited to be here. <laughs> Excellent. And what I'd, I mean, I think as both of you have sort of teed up there, we've undergone and are continuing to undergo like, incredible change at the moment. And that really does necessitate that companies develop that agility, that they're able to respond to changing market dynamics, change to sort of like geographical nuances. But before we get into that, one thing I just wanted to sort of ask, which is almost a problem within itself, is when we're talking around the strategy, which underpins product marketing, for instance, or marketing more generally, what to you does that look like? Because a lot of marketers I speak to have very different sort of conceptualizations of what the strategy is. So if we could start there, I'd love to hear from your perspective, what does the strategy look like and ideally need to look yeah. like? That is a very good question, Benedict. And I think that even taking one step before, people have different understanding of what marketing is. Like marketing can change depending on which industry you are. Uh, like for instance, in CPG, marketing plays a different role versus what you see playing in, in technology or financial services. But uh, for us in marketing, at least at Google, that means that we need to think about scale. Like how do we amplify the work that we do as a company, whether that is being helpful for the users on the consumer side of things, you know, the search, the maps, 
But on my side is on the B2B, how can we help our businesses, our customers who are advertising with us to be more successful? And how can we drive that at a scale? Because of course we have sales teams that work mm -hmm. very closely with them. And, but for smaller segments or smaller businesses, you need to do that more with technology, uh, with the use of marketing, with the use of our scale activities. And we have a few imperatives in our strategy. First is that we have to drive value. And that value means helping our businesses, helping them uh, to be successful. And that means if a retailer wants to drive more sales, how does that look like? And that means driving more traffic to the store, to the online store, or even to the offline store. Uh, that impact as well has to be translated into our own OKRs, which are our internal metrics. And that means revenue. So that is number one, mm -hmm. uh, revenue, thinking about how do we prioritize. But then equally, uh, when it comes to strategy, I think that most of the times is also knowing where you have to say no. Because a good strategy has to be very conscious of uh, trade-offs. So you need to pick two or three things and everything else you will need to deprioritize. Yeah. And that is your strategy. Those are the trade-offs. So if I want to launch something in Germany versus the UK, I need to be aware of how this decision is going to impact my key metrics. And based on that, I'm going to make a decision, a conscious one, where I may not do something in Germany or in the UK. Yeah. That's kind of the way I think about strategy. I mean, it's spot on. I can't actually remember who said this quote, uh, but there is that famous quote that strategy is deciding what not to do. Yeah. And I think exactly what you've said there is um, speaks to that. You spoke there around sort of you compared the UK as a market to Germany. Now, from your current, I suppose, experience, but also perspective, how sort of singular does strategy need to be at that global level and how much sort of local application and nuance does there need to be? What's, what's the right balance for companies? And I think that you said the right word is a balance. Yeah. And I think that also COVID changed things mm -hmm. because before COVID, I think that in general, tech companies were focusing a lot on scaling and having that common denominator, you know, whatever any tech company product offering they launch in the US or in China uh, or in Europe, uh, they wanted to use the same thing constantly. And that means the same product offering sometimes even means price, which is very interesting. If you look at the Netflix example, I think that is a good one because the pricing scheme changes depending on the region or the country where they operate. They just love putting it up recently. They love it. <laughs> yeah. While other companies don't do that. But then if you don't adjust your price, what happens automatically is that many of these tech companies are based in developed countries, right? Mm -hmm. Like US, Europe, or China in, in Asia Pacific, uh, Singapore, where the disposable income tends to be higher. So if you don't price your product properly, you are already ruling out Latin America and Africa by default mm. because they don't have the same resources. So I think that that is only, only one example, right? But in general, I will say there are things that you can scale. And of course, you need to find or look for those efficiencies. But equally, you need to be very locally relevant. And speaking about the pandemic, right? Countries went through the pandemic at different stages. Mm. There was no single uh, country that was or across the world that all of the countries were closed. You know, in the UK, we had, I think that we started or we set some trends in the UK, <laughs> goods and bads. Then you had other countries, well, Italy, right? Italy started and then it, it was moving. 
then the road to recovery also changed. So that meant that our product offering had to be adjusted to what uh, people were using or looking for in those specific countries. To give you a more pragmatic example, travel. Like we work with a lot of travel companies, but do we want to uh, monetize or do business with travel during the worst of the pandemic in Italy? Of course not. But our focus became, how do we enable them? How do we help them to understand how they can navigate these changes? And for many, it was a good opportunity because they never thought about digital acceleration or they didn't have the time. But now that you don't have business going, then you can actually invest. If you have money to invest, of course, you can invest on the transformation. And we created uh, one tool, for instance, called Hotel Insights to help hoteliers to understand where the demand is, mm. how they can optimize their website and so on. But anyway, the point is that we develop that depending on the context of the country. And similarly for uh, e-commerce companies, for uh, Germany, we had to think more about the industry in general, helping mm. with the recovery. Uh, you have a higher penetration of e-commerce in the UK. Uh, it's just behind China, for instance. So given that penetration that high, you need to think in a different way How do you package your solutions for the retailers in the UK versus other countries? I think that, that's fascinating. I, I really liked how ultimately what you've talked about there is how macroeconomic forces and epidemiological forces are at play. And actually, rather than giving everybody that sort of shared experience and bringing the world together, which I think probably was the trajectory we were on over the past sort of like 50 years, actually, it's almost decentralized things again. So are you seeing within, I mean, you can talk from your experience with, with Google, but there's almost been a bit of a mindset shift away from that sort of centralization of operations to a very, very localized sort of level of operating. I think that, and again, this is just probably general yeah. thinking, but in the industry, I think that we are becoming more decentralized mm. or thinking more about that local insight. We need to, in general, right? I think that is the right way to do it. As a marketer and as a, any business person, you need to think about your user and what is the end user looking for? How can you help them? Your, whether that is a consumer or that is a, a business to business. So from that, then you need to build your entire strategy and the way and the product offering that, that you have. Of course, there are going to be always things that, things that you can do at the scale and, and are going to be efficient. But I do believe that you need to think uh, locally or this term that I think that it was fashion a few years ago, globally in a way, right? I think that is, <laughs> you need to think, how do you operate at a scale, but in a way that is uh, contextually relevant to yeah. the market? I think that that's how we, uh, the, the balance. And that balance is difficult for each company. But again, how do you operate at the scale? Because there are, of course, efficiencies but being locally relevant. Absolutely. I think it was, um, there was an HSBC sort of campaign probably about 15 years ago, which was that whole think global, act local, which is exactly what you've just described there. I think, as I said, really, really interesting how we're, we're seeing that sort of shift. Do you feel there are any dangers or problems that might arise in terms of if we go so localized, which is really important because as you said, you've got to understand the local market, you've got to understand your consumer and customer insight. Could that potentially be at the expense of that consistent brand experience? It could also be cited as a regression, right? Because yeah. that might be where marketing was mm. 20 years ago. Yeah. It also depends on the company's strategy. Mm. And I mean, just to use some examples, right? I think that 
Apple does that very well. Like they operate at the global scale, but they have a very good consistency in the brand. They, of course, they have a different business model than, mm. you know, than what do we have. And, and this is experience not, you know, necessarily coming from Google, but my times working as a strategist. We did try to understand a lot of the times how different tech companies operate. And that's the reality, right? Like each company makes their own decision. Sometimes the PL is based at the local level. Sometimes the PL has to be centralized at global level. So that's going to dictate as well how do you operate and how do you expense mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the marketing, uh, the marketing uh, cost. All in all, I think that there is a risk, of course, and companies have to make that conscious decision whether you want to have that flexibility. I think that, for instance, what we have done and in the specific area where, where I work, so we launched this tool called Mar- Market Finder. It's called Market Finder across the different countries. Same name, same look and feel, but different insights, different content, depending on the country that you are. So you try to have that consistency in the look and feel, but you have more flexibility on the things that are going to drive the action, depending on the country. That is one example, right? But I don't think that you can consider a smartphone that has different look and feel or different features, depending on the country that you are in. Again, I think that I know that is not necessarily a black or white answer, but I think that goes back to your initial question. What is your strategy as a company? Yes. And if your strategy as a company is to have that consistency, then yes, you need to find ways how to drive that with a good balance of the local insight. There are companies that don't have that consistency and they are okay with that. My general view, again, and accumulated my experience, not only at Google, but even before, consistency is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you are going to repeat the same message over and over. Uh, consumers are going to identify your ads regardless of where you are. Uh, it's going to be more efficient and you achieve that tone, that voice, that same perception depend regardless of the channels where you advertise regardless of, of the country. It's more costly if you start with inconsistent branding, and then you want to consolidate things rather than from the get-go, try to have a consistent branding. Do you have any more questions on the localization aspect? Because I've got a slightly different tack that I'm interested to take it, but I don't want to digress prematurely. One question I would have is, when you talk about getting close to the customer in the Mm. different regions and areas, have you got any practical steps and advice you would give marketers that are listening to this podcast that may be working across different regions as to how they can go and garner that insight and the understanding about their customers in different places? Yeah. I mean, there are so many different ways, right? I think that the textbook or the traditional marketing playbook will tell you, let's run a research and let's run a focus group. But realistically, many times you don't have either the time or the resources. So I actually sometimes I'm okay with more scrappy ways to get insights. And many times the most insightful one is just sit down with customers, mm-hmm. speak to them, see what they want in a, you know, like this conversation, uh, have a genuine chat of how you can help them in what they want to achieve, what they like, what they don't like, get somehow a representative sample and start from there. Then you can optimize and you can run a bigger research to confirm hypothesis or not. Uh, but I think that you you need to fuel insights all the time, uh, regardless of the size of the company, regardless of the resources, uh, whether that is a conversation with a customer or if you want to run a research or 
even desktop research, right? Like you can do go on the internet and look at Google Trends, what people are looking for, what do they associate with? Mm. So I think that there are multiple multiple ways. Yeah, and I think it's a good example for us, right? So we obviously have, have been doing different pieces of proprietary research for years and years with different brands. And sometimes when you speak to people, when you say what research, they yeah. think it's going to take a long time, it's going to be in field for quite a while, and it's just quant information. The qualitative information that you're getting from speaking to customers and even internal stakeholders is as crucial to overlay on top of the data that you can get from desk-based research yeah. and then, you know, surveys as it's, well. It's incomparable. I mean, we, so just for your sort of like background, research is a big part of what, what we do. And quite honestly, the sort of the level of insight you can get from doing five qualitative interviews with yeah. target audience compared to doing a 500 person survey, it's just, they're not even equatable. Like you can get such a depth of understanding from those five interviews. And also you can understand where the next steps are in yeah. your sort of research journey. And I think so many, and I think probably we have to hold our hands up as an agency that we don't do that enough, actually just like just speaking to yeah. our clients, you know, in those informal settings, talking around the fringes of yeah. what you would normally sort of talk about is where you can uncover those real truths yeah. that are important. Well, the, the irony is we set up a podcast to kind of have these <laughs> conversations, right? Well, I take it back, we're doing it. <laughs> I think that actually the challenge these days yeah. is that you have so much information. Yeah. I think that more is... It's more about getting a couple of good hypotheses of what you think that the problem is or what you can solve and try to focus your attention on where the best data can come from. To give you just a couple of examples, like I remember in my times at P&G, one of the ways to get the customer insight was just go to the store, spend mm -hmm. time in the store, see how they shop, go and spend time with consumers at their homes, literally sit down with them watch TV with them, see what they have in the in the bathroom, what do they buy, what are the habits. And that, I remember back then, uh, use Pantene, uh, but Pantene was a very expensive brand for Latin America. One of the insights that we got from that visit of this uh, consumer was that she was using Pantene only for special occasions, like on Sunday when she was going out, because it was so expensive that she had to use a different shampoo in the day-to-day. And that led for us to launch a smaller size product of Pantene, the sachets. Yeah. Those were first launched in Latin America, and it was because of that insight. And that helped us to really drive sales of, of Pantene. That is only one example, right? And today as well, I can think of LinkedIn. You can also reach out to people who are experts on a specific field. People are more willing to, to share their experiences. And you can get, again, that qualitative information, I think that, the risk that we have today is that there is so much information. Yeah. It's more where, where you can focus and that you really have clear hypotheses that you can test. Definitely. I'm just going to, it's a bit of a passion project for me, this. So excuse this digression or return to something you just said a second ago. Like you're absolutely spot on when you talked about what you can learn through observation and you're talking around that Pantene example. And that's really sort of a part of what is a little bit of a growing trend within business, which is the idea of ethnography mm -hmm. as a sort of a practice. Now, clearly within a B2C environment, I think it's, I suppose it's easier because there are certain physical environments you can go into and you can observe yeah. people. Do you feel that there is more of an opportunity to almost deploy that sort of observational approach within B2B to help marketers better understand their, their customers or clients? That's a very good question. <laughs> And I think that is a difficult one, especially these days that we are doing everything yeah. online. I will say 
if you think about technology in general, basically people operate in SaaS environments where you sell a service, right? An ongoing service. Mm. It's not necessarily a once-in-a-lifetime purchase decision as you mm. do with Pantene or, or groceries, right? That you have that decision constantly. Is SaaS sometimes takes, you know, months to come to that decision. So it's not that easily to observe an event mm. when that happens. Then when you are online, it's even more difficult. When we used to have face-to-face -face events, for instance, where we used to meet with customers, it was easier to observe and have those conversations. So I think that to your point, yes, there is a potential. I just don't know how. <laughs> no, and, and same, I haven't quite cracked it yet. I want to, because I think it would just be so powerful in terms of unlocking that sort of level of insight if you could get to that sort of observational um, level. But anyway, so yeah, it was, it was a digression, whether or not it makes a final cut, we shall, we shall yeah, see, but interesting nevertheless. Can we also add, if you are Pantene, there's no point in doing a qualitative interview with you if you haven't really cared. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that might not make the cut. <laughs> it's all right. I'm sure Pantene has some associated sort of moisturising brands that well, uh, speak to me. a PNG customer because okay. PNG owns uh, Gillette, right? So yeah, there we the go. Best American, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Do they own Wash and Go as well? Because that's what you use, right? Don't, you washed it. That one I don't know actually. <laughs> They have changed their brands. I left a while ago, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so this is getting up tit for tat. We won't talk. I'm sure they have some hydrocortisone products. Oh, well, but... Nice. <laughs> but again, nice. this is interesting, right? Because it's about the strategy. It goes back to that. Yeah. Like you need to have a portfolio of different, a different product offering mm. depending on segment, so you can, you know, have a fair share, yeah. regardless of the of the customer. Excellent. And so uh, the route I was going to take it back a couple yeah. of minutes ago. Really interesting, and I'm going to use a bit of a cliched word here, but we've got all of this change that's going on, and a lot of it was unexpected change, which yeah. would have caused many companies, and here's the cliched word, to pivot yeah. in terms of their, their strategies. I'm just interested, you know, if you were to look back over the past two years, are there any real examples that stand out in your either direct team or wider team of where you were able to pivot a strategy based on what was going on within that market? Yeah. I think that I alluded a little bit to a few things, but I mean, it was just so complex, right? And we had, it was uncharted territory for, for everyone. So we had to rethink how do we operate as a team working from home with the challenges and the limitations that it has and the business as well, right? I think that the clear example was uh, the travel tool that I mentioned because we had a completely different thing in mind uh, when we started thinking about it. It was, Six months before pandemic, we thought that that could be a very good idea because, you know, travel was reaching, travel as an industry was reaching uh, record levels of sales. Like, mm -hmm. you know, everyone was jet setting in different countries. It was something that we took for granted. But then when pandemic hit, we had to rethink what we wanted to do, pivot to something that was more focused on helping uh, the travel companies to recover in a short to midterm, right? Like it was not about the business anymore, but equally the other thing was we reduced the number of countries where we thought that we could be operating and we had to focus more on uh, the commerce side of things because we saw that e-commerce companies or many merchants, uh, they were scrambling because they didn't have a payment, they didn't have a proper website, they didn't have the, the proper tools to be successful. Mm -hmm. So for us, it was important to also show those customers that we could help somehow. Mm. 
and with different things, right? We can provide education. We have our thing with thing with Google platform, which provides a lot of strategic and thought leadership for different audiences. Uh, but equally, with our easy tools, uh, Google My Business, that it doesn't matter if you don't have a website, you can go to Google My Business so people can find you on search or Google Maps, uh, which already by that is, is already a lot, right? And the other thing was we launched Grow My Store, which is a way to find or help them to understand if they have a good uh, customer experience on their website. So we were also trying to find different ways to help the merchants. And I think that, again, if I had to summarize, was to think, how do you operate as a team? Mm. Because the setting is going to change. You need to be agile. And how do you move the team, depending on the different business priorities? And then externally, or the business areas, we had to reduce or change our approach on travel to try to dial up on the commerce side of things. Mm. I think it's uh, one, one thing you just spoke that we were speaking earlier around the importance of understanding your your customers and your clients. And actually, almost the pandemic has accelerated that further. You just talked about almost partnering with your sort of the, the retailers and the, and the vendors. Uh, have, have you seen that COVID has brought you closer rather to some of those key sort of customer groups? Well, I think that at some extent, yes. There are different levels as well, right? Because you have different readiness stages on digital and there are or there were customers or merchants that they had to start you know from i just need to set up my website yeah. all the way to i already have a website i have my omni-channel strategy i need to do this uh, more automated i need to move into more uh, complex or more sophisticated tools to be able to drive demand i think that with especially with the ones that we work closely i can see that there are, there is definitely a better relationship and we have seen use cases from customers right that they were able to keep the business afloat because of the tools that we provided they were able to expand to other markets because of the tools or support that mm -hmm. we provided so there are tangible examples in which businesses could do well despite the challenges the challenging situation yeah. so i think that that's that's the answer to your question i would say it's definitely definitely yes and it, had, and it was also a, a lot of learning for us because, of course, you have to be to put yourself in their shoes. And at company level, and then again, this is public information, but last year, uh, Sundar, our CEO, he announced uh, funding for SMBs uh, because we the, it was not only about the tools and the different work that we could do with them, but equally, how can we help them fund their businesses? Mm. And, and even thinking about diversity and inclusion on the different ownership of businesses. If they are uh, uh, Black-owned businesses, how can we help this community uh, in the U.S. as well, right? Hispanic-owned business or female empowerment uh, or equally LGBT-friendly business. Try to provide the help to a big uh, diversity of customers. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's so powerful in terms of forging that sort of on a cynical level positive brand sentiment but on actually real meaningful level like actually the relationships between you know the businesses and merchants as yes. you just said there just quickly you, you talked about lessons there and i know i asked you the question i asked you to give me a sort of a specific example of where it had gone really really well and everything that was positive there i won't ask you to give a specific example but from your perspective, what was the the big learning from something which you didn't actually get right during the pandemic in terms of that ability to react and respond to the changing environments? I think that in different levels, you can find things, right? I will say 
or as I said, it was an uncharted territory. So even thinking working from home with a team, how do you keep them engaged? Like, yeah, there are things that probably we could have done faster. Mm. Like, okay, let's try to figure out that, you know, a dynamic in which we can continue that, that engagement. Uh, same with customers. I think that the learning or the lesson here is, is about speed. Like, I think that there are things that we could have done, done faster, even when actually we reacted very, very quickly. So I think that is more, more about, about the speed and sometimes being scrappier with things. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, right? Like the insights, like exactly, okay, like we don't need to wait until we get that research in place. Like we can probably just, you know, take a quick assessment and then, and then go, go for it. Uh, the reality is that, and, and we, we had this discussion recently with our CMO here, or she mentioned our CMO here in EMEA, Jonja, she said hey, something that I think that is very true, that even with these challenging times, for a lot of people, you could have, you saw the best of their work because people were genuinely interested in, in helping customers, right? Or it was, there were so many things that we could, that we could do to help and in, in terms of impact in different, different levels. But I think that point is, is quite apt, actually. I think that what I've seen, certainly over the last few years, even in, in our business, is the idea of perfect, you know, can't really exist if you're spending yeah. so much time to get there, right? Yeah. And ultimately, what we always talk to the marketing community about, and marketing community know, is you need to see what works, you need to innovate, you need to tweak, you need to change, you need to A-B test, yeah. right? And I think it's exactly the same with marketing strategy, ways of working, the understanding that it might not be perfect, but the speed to kind of change quickly. And before we were on air, you were talking about when you started at Google, it was the smallest business you've ever worked at. And now it's the largest business you've ever worked at. In your experience, do you think that that hampered the response to change in any way? It's natural that it's going to change, right? Because it's not the same thing uh, working with and a smaller group of like the three of us can come to a conclusion of A or B uh, making a decision more easily than having six people, right? Like that adds complexity. So you I haven't that... worked with him very right? <laughs> <laughs> So I think that, that definitely, definitely, I think that we, we have changed how do we operate. And again, there are upsides and downsides, right? Uh, it's not an, a, a straight answer. We can probably, it can take us more time to make a decision. But the scale is huge. Like we cannot afford, right, to make a poor decision because mm. we are touching thousands of businesses. Like just last year, looking at the numbers when we did a campaign for retailers, we reached 3,000 retailers across Europe, 30,000, 30. So at that scale, you cannot afford to just, you know, okay, this can be quickly and, and you can fail very badly. And of course, our uh, this year, I think that again, like we may be able to reach even even more customers. So there is is a compromise. There is no no free lunch in the strategy, as I said, right? Like you need to understand what are the upsides and what are the the, the downsides. That what uh, happens is and is natural. There are other areas that are are new. You know, like how do we think about launching a new product for app developers? It's a nascent area, at least in some of parts of of my team. So there is a little bit more freedom because we are testing, we are interacting with customers. We are trying to see what we can what we can develop. Or even the travel example, I think that that gave us they gave us the opportunity for us to decide how do we want to shape that uh, that tool externally. 
I'm interested in something you said earlier, and I just wanted to take it back there. We were talking around sort of the lessons that you almost learned that we had that really, really abrupt change. Everybody was working from home, and I'm sure it's common to everyone, but you talked about how it would have been great to be able to, I suppose, mobilize quicker, provide that support, make sure that everybody was engaged and motivated. And for you coming from Google, and Google has, I think, that positive reputation about creating amazing working environments. Yeah. Your offices are absolutely heralded for that. I haven't been there in a while, so <laughs> yeah, of course. But if you could re- think back in your me- memory and remember those uh, that that environment, but what do you think are those sort of key priorities in terms of creating a really really positive working environment where people are motivated within our new hybrid? existence where there is such dependency on technology which yeah. i know is obviously subject to be close to your heart coming from yeah. google yeah i mean definitely there was a difficult transition uh, for everyone i don't mm-hmm. think that you know at any level entry or young people in my team or older people myself like it was a difficult transition mm-hmm. uh, not only for the i think that not necessarily on the tech side of things because you know we have the technology that allows us to work from basically anywhere but more on the personal interactions. Mm. Because as you said, Google, we are, thankfully we have very nice offices. So the office allows for that collaboration and it was part front and and center of of how do we operate as a team and how do we create those relationships? How do you bump into into each other and then you realize that there is this potential big idea that you can work together? How, you know, that random conversation that yes. can lead to bigger projects. So that disappeared. Uh, honestly, I think that as a company, is they have been so supportive as a company, leadership team in general. It's a company that values the well-being of people at a large degree. And that came across in how we started moving things and all the support that we received. I think that as managing a team, one of the learnings was you need to overcompensate now because people are spending the entire time behind a screen. So then you need to overcompensate that human aspect. And that meant uh, what does, uh, that meant discussing things in a more candid way. I, uh, we had took trainings uh, around radical candor, which is basically, or in essence, is, is being very honest about things with the best spirit to help people, right? Because everyone wants to, wants to do their, their best at any organization, right? So I think that the management style change, uh, personally, uh, it changed on my on my side. And equally, how do you show that you care about the people that are in, in, in your team? How do you show that you, you can pick up some of the work because someone got COVID? Because someone is dealing with kids at home uh, while doing the remote work, while other things happening in their in their personal life. So... It proved to be definitely very challenging, but I think that the bottom line is you need to overcompensate that that human part because now you're behind the screen. So overcompensate as much as you can. And then, of course, when it was possible, we uh, found ways to, in a safe environment, of course, and outdoors mainly, but to get together as a team after uh, there were some people that I haven't seen in more than a year or so. And... Uh, one was in maternity, right? So she was just coming back and we haven't seen each other for more than a year. And you realize that you have all these individuals with almost daily relationships that you haven't seen face-to-face mm. in a while. Uh, so yeah, I would say that's that's probably part of it. Like we, we try to develop that part 
way more. And that was something consistent across the company, mm. the human element. And I, I agree with all that. And I think the overcompensation, one, one thing that I try to do a lot more throughout the, the pandemic period is we got so obsessed with being on the screen in front of people because that's how we needed to have our meetings and be collaborative. We actually forgot that, you know, a different medium is picking up the phone, speaking to yes. people over the phone, right? And I think that I certainly had a few more candid conversations and, and maybe more human conversations, which seems yeah. weird, right? Because you're not seeing the person yeah. over the phone rather than uh, on the screen as well. It was just a really small thing. but maybe I, I can't completely agree. I think it's a, the medium of the phone versus a video call are very different in terms of the quality that you yeah. can get. And actually, the reason I think you get that sort of more candid conversation is that there is that slight barrier. There is that slight anonymity that mm -hmm. comes with being on the phone and you feeling secure within yourself yeah. because you can't be seen. And I think this is... I'm seeing this more, more generally, that people are understanding that there are nuances to communication and it's not just about a rush. And Google do absolutely fantastic products for this. It's not a comment on that, but it's not just a rush to get to sort of really, really good video conferencing technology. It's about having a whole suite of different ways of communicating with people which I think is really, really important. In the same way, you used to have a variety of a formal meeting versus a five-minute coffee, yes, a quick sit-down yeah, or absolutely, coffee. Absolutely. And for us, you know, it was the start and the end of the meetings where you had those candid conversations when people were coming in the room yeah. or going out of the room yeah. after a meeting. Mm. You miss that over yeah. the, the video conversations. Which yeah. yeah, you miss that. And you also have to be more intentional mm. because in a way, many times the way you could develop or look at role models was because you run into those people in the office. Yeah. Mm. Now you don't have that anymore, right? So it's being intentional about, oh, I haven't spoken to this person who, you know, I used to get inspiration from. Let me now schedule a one-on-one -on -one with that person just to catch up and check in how that person mm. is, is doing. And it's the same thing that I uh, told my team to do uh, because other, otherwise we don't get those opportunities. So you have to be more proactive and think, that you need to reach out to those people and that this is, is, is a challenge for, for everyone. It's also important to recognize that there is no one that I have spoken to that says, oh, you know, it's quite easy. Like we can work from home indefinitely. No, mm. like it's, it's, it's a challenge not to see people uh, or build those relationships, whether that is one day per week or two days or three days, mm. that depends on the person. We're going to be hi a hybrid company. But my point is that there are different personal preferences. Yes. That has to do with introvert, extrovert, age, personal responsibilities, whatever. But nonetheless, people want to have those face-to-face -face relationships. But I think the key thing there is that flexibility. And that's what, how organizations have had to really adapt, I think, and change over the last three or four years. Yeah. Before the pandemic, even, yeah. we saw it, is those rigid policies, the, the things that were just kind of formally in place for so many years about working days, yeah. holiday mm. days, different mm. policies, they have to be more fluid now because, yeah. like you said, personal preference is very important to it keep is. top of mind. You can't just tell people, we need you five days a week. And, or and also people need to understand how to manage energy, and that's something that I have learned myself and that I have uh, told my team. But I'm a morning person, so even before pandemic, I used to show up at the office around noon because in the morning I was answering emails, uh, making decisions, looking at content, and then going to the office, get lunch, and then it was back-to-back -back meetings for the rest of the day. So I tell my team the same, right? Like try to optimize what works better for you because people have different energy levels. You have people who are more a, an evening person or, mm -hmm. 
or they have personal commitments as well, right? Like if they have kids or, or whatever. So I think that it's important that companies recognize that it's about the outcome of the work rather than the input, exactly. Like the time that you spend is an input. I can be 10 times more productive one hour in the morning than four hours of the end of the day. So people need to understand that. And as a human or as, as an individual, you need to understand as well where you operate at your best. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting in terms of this whole conversation has actually been a consistent thread, surprisingly. We've covered a lot of different bases. And that in sort of boring marketing terms is around the idea of audience centricity, understanding your audience, or in actually more human terms, it actually all comes down to empathy. You know, we were talking at the beginning in terms of how important it is for you to spend time with your clients, your customers, your merchants to understand exactly what it is the challenges that they're facing what are their priorities yes. how are the problems that they they need to over overcome and we also sort of talked about sort of the whole experience of the pandemic and the importance of again showing that empathy when it comes to your customers your merchants helping them out actively because they are experiencing challenges which you have problems sorry you have solutions to and then we've just finished the conversation talking around empathy again when it comes to understanding your work colleagues, understanding the nuances that they have within, whether it's their energy levels, their work preferences, their mediums for communication. So for me, just sort of going through this conversation, I think that is the really key theme is that importance of empathy within yeah. marketing and also just within businesses as well. Yeah. I mean, it's always what the what textbook says, right? Or or experts in marketing, you need to understand your audience. Like there is no, you know, right marketing channel better or worse. Like it comes to where your audience mm -hmm. goes, and the same uh, happens with your stakeholders, with your team. You need to understand what their needs are and act on that. And I mean, and, and you saw, I think that we mentioned briefly, but it was in the news as well uh, last week or a week uh, and a half ago that Google bought uh, another building here in the UK. So again, that's a testament of the talent that we see here in the UK, but equally that we want to have that physical place to interact. Mm. Even when we have all the technology, we still want to have that physical interaction. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. And that was a good summary as well. This won't go in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we that probably were lax on the summaries <laughs> in the previous editions. I suppose cutting back in, one final question is, obviously we've spoken about the last couple of years yeah. and how to adopt to change, but just a forward-looking piece, where do you see B2B marketing or maybe tech marketing in general heading in the next three to five years? It's going to be very exciting. I think so. It's going to be more complex. What happened with digital acceleration was that there was also proliferation of things. There are so many tools even as a marketer, like if you, you know, I, I work and mentor some startups or, or people that I work in, in my circle, and there is a proliferation of so many tools, right? Like you have something for the chat, something to manage the project, something else for whatever API. At some point, it's going to be a consolidation for sure. But it's interesting because people who are starting their professional journeys, they need to learn all these different things. So that poses a challenge, right? But but, it, but an interesting one, because then you need to, to really be on top of what else is coming, uh, what is working better with the audience that you want to target, and if there are new technologies, how they are going to be evolving. So I think that that is one, the new technologies that are coming and that there is a prolifer proliferation of that. Uh, another one is going to be uh, data. Of course, it's very important, but 
privacy is also becoming more and more important. This digital acceleration drove that there are way many more touch points where each of us are leaving our data behind. Privacy is becoming, again, more important. If you think about Germany, they have double opt-ins for emails because they don't want to be bothered to send the emails. Uh, GDPR, for instance, right? In Europe, we have to opt-in to, to receive an email from a company. That doesn't happen in the US, for instance, or, or in Asia. They just can send emails. So with these limitations, marketers also need to be more creative. How do I reach out to my audience? Because they don't want to be disturbed. There is so much information. And if you think about a retail company, it's not only the data that you leave when you interact with the website, but it's also when you receive the package. If, if you return the package, when you went to the store, when you use your credit, like there are so many more touch points, not only on the website, but on third parties, that is, is also uh, why it's becoming more important uh, to look at privacy. But equally, how can you make the use of that data and be more creative? So basically, we're talking about proliferation of tools. Mm. We're talking about privacy uh, and changes in consumer behavior. I think that one of the big changes is going to be, or is going to continue to be convenience, you know, faster the better. People were okay with two days delivery. No people want same day delivery or one hour delivery uh, time window. And people are just becoming more and more obsessed about it. Uh, also, depending on some, on, on the country, on the countries, but people are willing to pay more for that. And you have this tension with logistics because it has been disrupted. That is not going to be necessarily achieved easily because there are just not so many people who want to work on those type of jobs. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to find, to find people these days. And then the last bit on, on the consumer changes is sustainability, green sustainability. People are more and more concerned that we are not damaging the environment with whatever product you have. It's an emerging trend, of course, but it's growing. I think that we are not at the point in which at scale or mass produced products, people are making conscious decisions yet. I think that is very niche and tends to come as well from wealthier segment of the population that people make those decisions because also it's more expensive. It's more expensive if you buy organic or if you have sustainable, uh, sustainable products, but it's going to come, right? And it's becoming cheaper and cheaper. And I think that people are going to be more more receptive of that. So and I think that those are the biggest. It's the proactiveness. It's just creating a business that shows that they're thinking about it and putting it at the forefront, whether they're B2C or B2B. Yeah. It's definitely something that's going to be, I think sustainability is going to be extremely prevalent. It is. And you see also trends as well in how business operate, the subscription model, for instance, like more and more companies have the recurrent revenue type of model, right? Mm. We see as well some inflation in some countries uh, more than in others. So that may disrupt as well the pricing methods that some companies use. So, yeah, I think that I gave you a good list. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're right in saying that it's an exciting time, both for the, the reasons that it's there's more touch points, there's more opportunity for yeah. marketers, but also there are going to be a lot more challenges. And actually it's that challenge which creates creativity because yeah. you need creativity to navigate those and then with as i said all of that extra opportunity very very exciting time for marketing that's a wrap thank you very much miguel thank you really so much gentlemen b2b marketing solved is brought to you by alan agency to find out more about us head to alan-agency.com and make sure to search for marketing solved in apple podcasts spotify or anywhere else great podcasts are found. 
Don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss any future golden nuggets from the biggest names in B2B marketing. On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening.